Well, it puts us back in our study of Daniel. We're going to try to finish that up by winter grace this month. Chapters 10, 11, and 12 are one piece. You remember back in chapter 10, Daniel had had an awful vision. I don't know what was in the vision, it doesn't say, but it was terrible. It literally destroyed him emotionally and physically. Remember, he fell to his knees, he couldn't catch his breath, he couldn't look up. In fact, he flattened out to plumb the, the ground. And finally, one came to him that looked like a man, had the appearance of a man, the appearance of a son of man, might have been an angel. I think it was a Christophany. I think it was one of those pre-incarnate manifestations of Christ himself, just like he had appeared to Joshua and others in the Old Testament at very critical times. The Lord knew that Daniel need, needed him. And so the Lord shows up. You remember what he did? He touched him and he raised him up. Ah, that's what the Lord does. He touches us with a healing hand, with a mighty hand, with a saving hand, and he raises us up. Wherever we are, whatever our mental condition, whatever our spiritual condition, our physical, financial, whatever condition we're in, the Lord raises us up. And that's what he did with Daniel there in chapter 10. And then he began to explain to him what the vision meant. And as we look at what the vision was all about and, and show the uh, story here as it continues in chapter 11 and 12, we understand why Daniel was disturbed. Because what is portrayed here in these two chapters, 11 and 12, and that's it. This is the last portion of the book of Daniel. This is it. The Lord is showing and telling Daniel what it's going to be like for God's people in the next 500 years. He's given them a timetable. He told them it would be a period of 77s. Some say weeks, but the word literally is seven. 77s. What were those sevens? Well, we don't really know. We do know that it covered a period of about 500 years. It was between the time that Cyrus, the Persian king, released the people and allowed them to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, effectively ending their captivity. And 500 years extending forward then to the coming of Christ. During that period of time, we would see several empires rise and fall. And most importantly, what we'd see during that period of time was an incredible conflict. We would see one horrible thing after another. These empires would fight each other. These empires would, would raid. They would ravage. They would kill people. They would rob people. In fact, let me just review what these empires will do to each other. They'll kill. They'll steal. They'll commit all kinds of sexual immorality and adultery. They will lie, especially do these tyrants, these, these empires lie and use deceit. They're treacherous. We'll finally see a guy here in a few moments that was nothing but a Mideastern terrorist in his day. They will literally break every commandment. There's no greater place anywhere in the Bible to review the larceny and the heart of the soul of man 
been here. The murder, the adultery, the covetousness of these great kings as they went in and they were always stealing the wealth of each other's uh, kingdom. So what we have here is a very, very sad story, but it's the story of the kingdom of man constantly shifting, constantly changing, constantly idol worshiping, performing every abomination you can possibly imagine. And in the midst of that conflict between the nations and among the nations, the empires, the real conflict, the great conflict is the conflict between that world system and God's people. So really the whole point of the passage, and I, I'm going to read the whole thing. That's a threat. I'm going to do it. But the real conflict is between all of this worldliness and all of this ungodliness and all of this sin and all of this, this evil that's in the world and God's people. And there's a point to telling us how it's going to be that's these 500 years. Because actually, if you look at the end of the passage, it's kind of open-ended. We get into chapter 12. It really extends on beyond this 500 period all the way to the very end, the end of time, the eschaton, the great last day. And this is how God's people are supposed to react to that. And you'll find it there if you'll just look at the long passage and look at the very uh, end of it there at about verse 32. It's talking about that last king uh, who, who, by the way, is in... Antiochus Epiphanes and uh, says a lot about him before it gets there but it says uh, he shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action that's it that's, that's the application that's the point of the passage if we get that we've got it in the midst of all of this conflict God's people, the people that know their God, will stand firm and take action. Two things, similar, related, but different. Standing firm means that we hold to the faith. We hold to the good confession. We seize upon that grace that God has given us and we cling to it even to our dying day. We persevere. We hang in there. We endure to the end by God's grace. But then we take action. It means that we're not just passive. We're not just holding on and holding to what we have spiritually, but we're taking action. Even in the midst of all this, there are things that God's people can do to fight this godlessness and this tyranny, to resist it, to stand up to it, and to move and counter against it. And one of the things they can do is spelled out then as we go along. He says, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. The wise among the people, by the way, Daniel considered himself, or he was considered a sage. He was a wise man. He was one of these men that were part of the, uh, the company of men who understood things, who could interpret things, who were well-educated and wise to the ways of God as well as to the ways of men. In fact, it was this particular guild of men from which tradition tells us that the Magi came. 
the Magi that came from the east, from Persia, to the house where Jesus was when he was born in those early days of his life. And they bowed down before the king because they had been studying the stars. They had been studying history. And they knew something was about to happen. They knew an unfolding of time had taken place and it was time for the king to be born. The king of the fifth kingdom. You remember the kingdoms, they'd been spelled out in a giant image. The first one was Babylon, the head of gold. And then we had the Medo-Persian empire with, with a, a chest of silver. And then it came down to the abdomen and the thighs, bronze. This represented the Grecian empire. Then the fourth empire was the legs and the feet made of iron and clay, the Roman empire. And it was during this Roman empire, this fourth empire, that a fifth empire would come forth. And it would be a stone that would be carved out of the mountain. And the stone would come down the mountain gaining momentum and crash into the feet of the statue. And crumble the clay and the iron and crush him completely. And this was a picture of Christ's coming kingdom. Christ's coming kingdom was going to come during the Roman empire on earth in, in human history. So it's a good idea to know your secular history as well as your biblical history because this is biblical history but it's actually prophetic prophecy it's the Lord saying to either through an angel or directly through a theophany he's, he's telling the people what they're in store for and it's horrible it's terrible and dreadful even Daniel as strong as he is doesn't have the stomach for it he can't understand it. We live in a peaceful and a prosperous country. We've lived here enjoying the heritage of the Puritans now for 300 and 400 years. And we live in a place, we have no realization of what it's like to be a Christian in world history, in other places around the world and in other centuries of time. We just don't. We have no way of knowing. We've had such a saturated, Christianized culture that we don't understand the violence, the treachery. We're beginning to see it though, aren't we? Are we beginning to see the evil and the violence and the unrest and the lying and the tyranny and the treachery and the traitors? Are we beginning to see it in our culture and in our world, in our government and in our life? Well, it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. And God's people need to understand, and that's the job of those that know their Bible and know their history and know their God. They are able to do something during these terrible days. They can make many understand, though the days shall, though they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. Even the, even the godly people will suffer in the midst of all this great conflict. And many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be, and here it is, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white. That's what God wants to do. We go through all this because God's trying to clean us up, purify us. The first agent of purification that God uses is a purging agent called the blood of Christ in which he applies it to the soul that believes and cleanses them from all sin and washes them white in garments of white. But then the cleaning process continues in sanctification. Little by little, more and more, God makes us more and more like Christ. Frees us more and more from sin. 
saves us from our sin, cleans us up, makes us talk cleaner, think clearer, speak more edifyingly and supportively. God begins to work on us, and it's the work of the Lord. The triune God's at work. God Almighty decrees it. Everything in this passage over and over talks about the decree of God. God the Son has accomplished it on the cross in our behalf. God the Holy Spirit enthuses it within our souls and makes us what we ought to be. There's going to be tough times for us, beloved. And, and I dread it. I don't want it. I, I, I like peace and quiet and prosperity. I really do. I'm soft. I, I'm easy. But that's, that's not what we're probably facing in the next generation or two. We have to know what God wants, but it's for our good. He's going to purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That's what Paul says in Ephesians. Now, some of you are peculiar anyway. But peculiar, he means a people that are definitely distinguishable from everyone around them. Barna, who does all these surveys and kind of keeps us track of where we are in the Christian faith in this country, Barna in his surveys and in his, uh, his work tell us that there's just almost no discernible difference between the life, the speech, the uh, habits, the divorce rate, the addiction rate, between the worldly, lost, dying generation and the average Christian. Something's wrong, isn't it? What it is, is we haven't, we haven't been purified. And we haven't been purified because we haven't had the conflicts in our lives yet to do it. Now, we've had quite a bit. We have health issues, and we have financial issues, and relational issues, and there's a lot of things that have, have cleaned a lot of us up a lot. But there's more expectation from God's people along these lines. Now, let me just talk about this, this whole chapter here, and I'm going to read it. Are you ready? This is a continuation of what was being told. Remember the, the, uh, the uh, angel or Christ himself says, I tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. And then in this passage, he begins, he says, he, now I will show you the truth. Verse 2. Now he's already told them that what he's doing in the big picture over in chapter 10, verse 14, he says, and I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days for the vision or for the days yet to come. Now the latter days in scripture are the days of Messiah. The former days are all those days before Christ. And then when Christ was born, the incarnation came in the flesh, everything we celebrated the last few weeks at Christmas. When that actually historically happened about 4 BC in the days of, the, of Augustus Caesar in the town of Bethlehem, literal stones and bones history, when that occurred, the last days began. Jesus was living in the last days. Paul and Peter were living in the last days. We're living in the last days. They're the latter days as opposed to the former days. They're the days of fulfillment instead of the, the, the days of just prophecy. And so this is predictive prophecy with respect to the, to the passage in the time of uh, uh, the era of time, the epoch of time that is contemplated, which is about 500 years before Christ from the days of King Cyrus until the days of the birth of Jesus Christ and the life and ministry of Christ. 
So it's that, it's that period. And so he's going to talk about all of these kingdoms that are coming, that are rising up and that are falling. And so I'm going to read the text, but as I do, I may insert a name or a comment as we go. And you don't have to stand. This is the reading of the word. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. This is the angel or Christ talking about what he did in helping Michael. Michael was the guardian angel of the nation Israel, and he was fighting a spiritual warfare. He was fighting with principalities and powers and, and authorities in high places on behalf of uh, Israel, fighting off really the king of Persia. Uh, in, who was trying to prohibit them from actually returning and building the temple like they had been authorized to do. But he says, I stood up to confirm and strengthen Michael, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. Well, actually about eight more kings arrived in Persia, historically, but only three of them were very significant. A couple of them only served just a few weeks in office. One of them served as long as 46 years. So there's a mention of the three prominent kings of the Persian dynasty. And then there was a fourth, and this was Xerxes. He was the final great king of the, of the uh, dynasty of Persia. And a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And this was true. Xerxes garnered wealth from all over the place. And when he had become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. You remember Xerxes began to promote those wars against Greece. So now we have the kingdom of Greece being brought into the picture. Well, you remember a few chapters back, we talked about a ram and a goat. You remember the ram was doing everything, destroying and budding everything and, and doing everything to conquer and it was vicious and nobody could withstand. That was Persia. Now Greece, Greece is the goat. And so there's a mention of it. It says, then a mighty king shall arise and shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. This is Alexander the Great from Greece. And he has begun his conquest in Macedonia and Greece and Thrace and that area over there. And now he is beginning to move through Asia Minor, coming into, into this part of the world and expanding his empire and beginning to push the Persians back. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, not according to authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and, and go to the others beside these. Alexander the Great had a short career, powerful career, but he had no successors. He had no, no sons, daughters, no one to take over the throne. So when he died, rather unexpectedly and rather uh, at a young age, about age 30, when Alexander died, his kingdom was split among his generals. In the first dozen years or so after his death, they finally kind of parceled out the whole uh, kingdom, uh, the whole empire of Persia. And they had um, Cassandra. I always thought that was a girl's name, but... Evidently, it was a great mighty general's name. Cassandra in, in Macedonian Greece took over the home turf. And then there was an Antigonus took over Asia Minor. And then Seleucus took over Syria in that country that pushes back across the Tigris-Euphrates River to Babylon, going back into Persia, that sector. And then the sector in the south was Egypt and all the countries surrounding the northern part of, of Africa and going down into Ethiopia. That part of the empire was taken over by a general named Ptolemy. 
So now we have four generals and the only ones we're concerned about are the two that are closest to Israel because Israel occupied that little strip of land right there on the Mediterranean coast and north of them and south of them is where all their troubles were. Because if you look to the west, it was the, it was the Mediterranean Sea. If you look to the east, it was the Arabian Desert. Nobody bothered them too much from those angles, but everything came down to them from the north. Babylon, Syria, they'd all come from the north. And then the south. Egypt has always been part of Israel's history. And so Egypt in the south. And so it was the Seleucid dynasty in Syria, and it was the Ptolemies in, in, the, in Egypt in the south. They were going to be fighting with each other all the time. And every time they fought, guess who gotten, got the worst of it? Israel. Israel's right in the middle. And every time their armies moved, they moved through Israel. And that's what happened, especially at the, at, in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. So here we have this, um, and it says, He shall um, uh, not according to any authority. Uh, he had no right, whatever, uh, to the kingdom, but it was plucked up and it went to others. So now we're going to talk about the king of the north and the king of the south. You ready? Let's read a little bit. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. And his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance with the daughter of the king of the south, shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. And the name of this daughter is Bernice. And one of the things that you'll see all through this history is that they, they give their daughters to each other to make treaties and to make peace. And really what they do, they're just prostituting their own young daughters to the harem of the other king to make some kind of sacrifice and some kind of peace. It's, 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 it's a dysfunctional family at its worst. And this, and this is what is, is happening in the lives of these, of these kings. And she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up in her attendance, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. And then, from, and from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. You see how this, they're trans, uh, going back and forth and fighting each other and having these, uh, these arrangements and these deals. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight with the king of the north and he shall raise a great multitude and it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted and he shall cast down tens of thousands but shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years, he shall come up with a great army and abundant supplies. And by the way, in this period of time with these wars between the, the Syria in the north and Egypt in the south, they keep amassing larger and larger ar armies. So they have to plunder more and more places in each other's kingdom and even in their own to raise funds to be able to fight these wars. And one of the things that is notable, we started having massive armies in this period of time. Earlier wars in history were fought with much smaller forces. But now all of a sudden one account says that they, they had in one, I don't know what you call it, it wasn't a company, but in one group, in one division, they had 70,000 infantrymen and 6,000 horses. 
And that, you think about what it takes logistically to move that along. That's an incredible army. And in those times, many shall rise up the king of the south. And the violent among your own people shall lift them up yourselves in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. In other words, there's even violent people within Israel who are apostate, who don't keep the covenant, who forget the covenant. They've been mentioned and they were, they're, they're compromised Christians is who they are. They're people who do not really believe and don't stand up and so they sell out their fellow believers. They tell the authorities where they're meeting. They do things that, that, that cause treachery among the very people. In fact, most of Israel's conquest was always somebody betrayed them. Somebody betrayed them. The Edomites betrayed the, the people of Israel during the days of the Roman conquest. And the people here in Israel, some of the priests, some of the priests actually were sellouts. They adopted the pagan religion and offered the sacrifices on the pagan altars instead of continuing to worship the true God. Could that ever happen in the church? You think there could be sellouts in our midst and in, in our denomination and in our, in our Christian culture? New Testament says they, there will. There's false prophets who arise from among you, Paul says. They're not enemies foreign, they're enemies domestic. And so this is what's going on here. All horrible things. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops. And this is a fellow by the name Antiochus the Great. There's about five key uh, kings in each of these, these dynasties that ruled at different times. And that's kind of, there's some minor a leadership in there and they, they, they splinter and fragment a little bit but by and large that's the, that's the flow of history and this is Antiochus the Great. For there shall be no strength to stand and he who comes against him shall do as he wills and none shall stand before him and he shall stand in the glorious land. The glorious land, that's a mention of the holy land. The land of, of Judah. With destruction in his hand, he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. That was Cleopatra, by the way. You all know the story of Cleopatra. She was the daughter in this case that was prostituted to the other side. But it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortress of his own land. But he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. This uh, direction of the battle here is on the other side. There becomes a rise of another force. And it's the Romans now are beginning to come. So they're beginning to see some of the influence of Rome has come across the Mediterranean Sea the, and, and is starting to work in on the, uh, the, the end here of the, of the Greek Empire. And uh, then it says, he shall not be found. That's the death of uh, Antiochus. He disappeared. They, they don't know what happened to him. And that was his fate. And then verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in rage nor in battle. 
In his place shall rise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Let me stop and tell you who that is. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus the Great had three sons. The first two just didn't quite make it to the throne. Antiochus Epiphanes, it's not the way he gave himself that name. It's, this is Epiphany Sunday. The word epiphany means illustrious or an appearance or a manifestation. And that's what Antiochus Epiphanes thought of himself. He thought he was a glowing personality. He thought he was an illustrious light. He thought he was, and yet he was one of the, the most cowardly and the most uh, treacherous of all the ancient kings. And he's going to be very significant in the life of Israel, not only in what he personally did, but what he did, how it is typical and symbolic of what subsequent tyrants will do. What Rome will do eventually in 70 AD. What the Antichrist will do at the end of the age. These are things that, that the uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes will, and let's read a little bit more about him. But within a few days he shall be broken and his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. That's the thing, Antiochus Epiphanes in his youth was a, was a, a, a captive in Rome. He'd been given basically as, as a, a tribute to Rome. But he had managed to, to get out and came with the support of some people who were traitorous to Rome. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. He didn't have to take it over by war. He took it over by, by flatteries and by lies and deception. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time shall an alliance be made with him, he shall act deceitfully. By the way, he's typified as one of the great tyrants of the Old Testament. And that's how tyranny works, by the way, is by lies. Tyrants tell us lies. And that's how they control us. That's how they take us over. That's how they win us to their side. And that's how they threaten us. And that's how they deceive us. And so deceit, once again, breaking one of the cardinal commandments of the Lord, thou shalt not bear false witness. And he shall become strong with a small people. He was actually a terrorist. Most of his tactics were terrorist tactics. He didn't need a large army. He had a small group of extremely vicious and ferocious men who would go into a village and just completely do everything imaginable. They would steal everything. They'd rape all the women. They'd kill all the children. They'd take captives. And then they would burn everything down. And they did that over and over in villages everywhere. That was just how vicious Antiochus Epiphanes was in his operations. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither of his fathers nor his father's fathers had done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. If he was worse than those guys that went before him, his fathers and grandfathers, then he was some kind of character. Because the stories of what those, those men did through the years, the Persians and then the Greeks, he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceeding great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Notice how often the, the empire or the kingdom falls because of the treachery within inside. The, the traitors, the sellouts, those that say they're going to do one thing and don't do it. Those that turn coat in the middle of the battle. That's really how great kingdoms fall. They fall more from the inside corruption than they do from the outside force. And that's what happens here with him. Even though those who eat his food shall break him. 
People at his own dining room table are against him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall slain. For as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. Now you got the two together. They shall speak lies at the same table, the king of the north, the king of the south. But to no avail, for the end of it is yet to be at the time appointed. This is the third time in this text they keep talking about. This is decreed. This is appointed. God's showing this to Daniel, but it's going to certainly come to pass. Yet he shall return to his land with great wealth, and his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. That's the fundamental problem with Antiochus right there. As much as he hated his enemies all over the place, he hated the people of God the most. He had a thing. In fact, you follow his career, he would come from the north down to the south to make war. Every time he came through Israel, he would, he would plunder and do something. And then he would go back home. He would do something to Israel on the way back home. He did that about three times coming through Israel in the... Uh, 160s BC, especially in 163 and 164 BC did he do his worst things. <clears throat> and at the appointed time he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as before. This time he's going to come to the south, but it's not the same because what happens, verse, verse 30, for ships of Kedem shall come against him and he shall be afraid and withdraw. What a coward. Isn't that usually true of some of these people? Afraid and withdraw, and he shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. Here's these ships coming in. They're the ships of Rome. He's afraid of them. He's scared. He won't stand up and fight. Instead, he comes back home. But on his way back home, he does all kinds of violence to the people of the covenant. And these ships of Rome, by the way, will begin to build up, and Rome's going to build up its power more and more. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His interest is those within Israel who are not covenant keepers. That's the, that's the weak place in the church. That's the place in the church where you get a foothold if you're a godless apostate. And that's what he does. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offerings and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. I think you know this much about him. He raised the temple. He stole everything he possibly could, but it's worse than that. He erected idols to the pagan deities. He, he offered a sow, which you know what the the people of Judea think of pork. He offered a sow on the sacred altar, the place where they usually offer the animal sacrifices to the Lord. How can you desecrate a place any more than that? He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. And then we're back to our text. But those who know the Lord, stand firm. And they take action. <laughs> 